This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. quiet streets of the Emanuel settlement, Malka Leifer appeared to be just another face in the crowd, blending seamlessly into the fabric of daily life. Yet beneath this ordinary facade lay a story that would captivate and horrify a nation. Leifer, a former headmistress at the Adat Israel School in Melbourne, was under suspicion for heinous acts of sexual abuse against her students. Miners. Her saga, marked by a cunning flight from Australia and a controversial claim of mental unfitness for trial, unfolds against the backdrop of international legal drama, challenging the very principles of justice and accountability. The case of Malka Leifer is not an isolated incident, but a symptom of a deeper, more pervasive issue within the Haredi community. Sexual assault, often shrouded in silence and taboo, leaves its victims isolated and desperate for support. This societal challenge poses profound questions about power, protection, and the willingness of a community to confront uncomfortable truths. As the struggle for justice for lifers' victims continues, it reveals the complexities of balancing religious loyalty with the imperative to safeguard the innocent. Enter Shana Aronson, the CEO of an organization dedicated to protecting victims of sexual assault within the ultra-Orthodox community. With a mission fueled by personal conviction and a deep understanding of the nuanced dynamics of Haredi society, Aronson and her team stand at the forefront of a tireless fight for justice. Their work, emblematic of a broader struggle for change, brings hope to those who have suffered in silence, offering a beacon of support in a landscape often dominated by power and patriarchy. As we delve into this episode, we explore the courage, challenges, and unwavering commitment of those who dare to stand up against sexual assault in the Haredi community. We are thrilled to be joined today by Shana Aronson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So maybe we start with uh, what got you into this mess? I mean, this is like... I feel like most kids probably don't, you know, dream of growing up and doing no, this. No, I hope not, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it started, I mean, I think probably when I first started thinking about this, I actually I pretty much was a kid. I was probably about 14. Um, I grew up, obviously, in a very Haredi community and Which family. Which sect? Litvish. My parents were mm-hmm. more from the Bali Chuva um, community, but I, and I was... In when before my family made Aliyah, I was in a very Haredi school in America, but in the Midwest, and then we moved here, and so my parents put me into the most Haredi school here in <laughs> where we lived, which we soon learned was not the same thing <laughs> as what Haredi in America meant. Um, that was a learning experience over a couple of years. I ended up going back to America for school myself, um, but there were a couple of years there where things got a little dicey for me in terms of the crowd that I got in with. One of the things that I remember noticing when I was about 14 was just how many of my friends had been sexually abused and how this kept just 
kept coming up and very casually. I mean, we were we were 14. We didn't know what the heck we were doing or talking about. But there was like this, just sort of this running theme. It kept like, I don't know, we would, it would just come up, one friend, another friend. Um, and I remember at one point saying to someone like, it's so weird. I feel like this is maybe, like maybe this is happening in other places because what are the odds that it's just like everyone that I know? Like that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, How would it come up? casually if i can ask like what kind of things would be mentioned so in retrospect the truth is i i only remember it starting to come up when i was like 14 15 and when my friends were a little bit more at risk um where some were somewhat leaving the Haredi community or sort of flirting on the edge um but in retrospect there were friends that i had from even when i was younger like really a child who i'm sure were being sexually abused at home based on things that they described, games that they would play. Um, it's, again, in now in my adult mind, mm. just looking back, I can see some very, very clear red flags of what was going on there and some things that they were clearly experiencing. Mm. But obviously at the time, I had no idea. This was just weird. Um, yeah, it was a strange pattern. And I remember at one point, I think when I was 14, saying to someone, like, maybe one day I'll do like a like a doctorate on this, like I'll do like research. And thankfully, the world did not wait around for me to get my doctorate <laughs> to start actually talking about this. Um, because I, I really at the time thought like, oh, it's so strange that this isn't being talked about. Like, I wonder if like maybe no one's noticed that so many kids from the Haredi community, like maybe no one's realized that so many people are being sexually abused. I now realize that no, there, people realized it was the fact that it wasn't being talked about was quite intentional. Um, and I mean, there's all the reasons that I think in general in the world, people don't talk about having been sexually abused. There's an incredible amount of shame and stigma associated with it. Thankfully, that's something that has started to change in, in, the, in the world in general, but we still have a long way to go there. Um, it's something that, I mean, sexual abuse specifically, unlike most other kinds of abuse, although that's not true because it really can, this, this can come up in other forms of abuse as well, but there is something unique in that if I'm walking down the street and someone punches me in the face, I'm most likely not going to think that I did something that made them punch me in the face. Like there's going to be a clear, but sexual abuse and the nature of just how it often comes about is there's, there's a lot of manipulation um, and a grooming process and victims feel incredibly guilty and like there's something that they did wrong or that they should have stopped or they should have understood or should have realized um yeah so i think that that's something that that's something that exists everywhere that's not unique to the Haredi community but then if you you throw in all of the added layers of complexity and shame that go along with the Haredi community a just the general discomfort of discussing or relating or even approaching anything related to sex in general even in the best of circumstances um and then the everything related to shidduchim, the matchmaking system of you know there's where there's levels there's somebody you know there's level like sug aleph sug bet and and the fear of being put into a lower category and how that's going to affect not only the victim themselves but their whole family this might affect all the siblings um as well as if even but that goes back i think even further to the schools getting into the right schools getting accepted into the right schools which like it all sort of feeds into the school affects the Shadokim. <laughs> it all sort of goes together. Um, there definitely is somewhat of a system of 
class or caste in the sense of you know that like i said there's levels so and and being sexually abused is has been seen as something that's going to put you into a lower level and how will that affect the family so as a teenager um or before or a bit after what was like was there like a specific story of someone you knew that that triggered something like what's the first time you firsthand yeah. you heard about i remember i had a friend who um i had a friend who was raped and she told us about it and she was afraid that she might be pregnant also in retrospect i there was no way she was pregnant but we didn't know a whole lot about how someone got pregnant and so we were really scared and i remember going to the pharmacy she i i said you need to take a pregnancy test and she was like i'm not buying a pregnancy test so i was like well then i'm gonna buy the pregnancy test because what are we gonna do someone's gotta you gotta take this test And I remember going into the pharmacy in the Tachanamer Kazit in Jerusalem, downstairs, and getting this pregnancy test. And I was wearing my Beis Yaakov uniform. And I was sure that, like, the police were going to show up and arrest me. Like, all the alarms were going to start going. I was, like, waiting for, like, a security guard to, like, stop me. Because, like, who would let this, like, 14-year-old girl in, like, in a Beis Yaakov uniform buy a pregnancy? Like, how? No one's going to let this happen. And then I was shocked to find that, like... The woman at the counter didn't really seem to care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure she noticed or was paying attention. Like, and I just somehow walked out of there with this pregnancy test. Like, I feel like I'd robbed a bank. Two for half uh, a price. Yes, exactly. Like, what does she care? Um, and she's I'm, like, "Do you want some batteries with that?" Right. Like, just, <laughs> anything else? <laughs> just. And I, we went into the bathrooms, and I remember my it was a ridiculous scenario. Like, my my friend was taking this pregnancy test. We're trying to figure out like how this things works and. And then another one of my friends was sitting on the floor of the bathroom saying to Hillam, literally praying that this, wow. like, this was a whole, all of us in the uniforms or whatever. And I just remember thinking, like, where are the adults? It, like, even then, I just remember thinking, like, there's something wrong with this picture. And, and I really, I really, I mean, I was 14. I believed I knew everything there was to know in the world. But... But I knew there was something very off about about this just situation. Like this wasn't really the way it should be. Um, who, why who, are we a bunch of teenagers sitting on the floor of a bathroom? Can you do you know who was the the perpetrator? Yeah. And can yeah. you share? He so this was this was a situation where um, the perpetrator was another teenager. Uh, okay. He was also somebody who. Um, grew up in the ultra-Orthodox community. He had very much left. And in this case, I really do think, and, and I struggle with this because sometimes there's, there are, I think, among teenagers that leave the ultra-Orthodox community. The truth is there's this issue among a lot of teenagers, but a lack of understanding of what constitutes consent. Mm. Um, and I think just looking back and the way she described what happened, I don't think, and, and I don't want to excuse it because what he did was really unacceptable. And he later actually apologized to her and I think grew up a little bit and understood that what he had done was really not okay. But he had kept pushing. She didn't resist in the way that was so obvious that she was resisting. And I think that there there is a real problem with um, among young teenagers, I'm talking about specifically, like really young, of not understanding what consent means and what enthusiastic consent means um and i think that's i mean I, i don't think i need to think it i think it's something that clearly is is the case we've got this problem i think with 
teens across the board, um, young people um, who, but I think especially for teenagers who are coming out of Haredi community where the extent of sex education that they've had is don't talk to girls. That's that's yeah. about it. Um, and I think he really, again, I, I don't want this to sound like I'm excusing him, but he genuinely afterwards seemed to really not have understood what, why what he had done was wrong. Um, and again, he did later apologize and it was complicated, but yeah. um, there was some attempt Imagine. at making amends there. So you mentioned that, you know, only it was only after you moved to Israel that you had realized how prevalent this problem was within the Haredi community, or at least, I mean, you know, the Haredi community is pretty much what you knew. So how prevalent it was. Um, is it now looking back, is it something that is more prevalent in the Haredi community? And is it something that's more prevalent in the Haredi community in Israel than it is in the United States? Or are these things that you don't think are necessarily um, so, like... It's really hard for me to answer that. I always want to answer that, and unfortunately I can't because there is n there have not yet been, there's not yet been enough research, or mm. pretty much almost any research, um, on this topic. Um, I can tell you what I believe just anecdotally, which is always dangerous and might mm. get me in trouble with a lot of people. Um, I don't think that there's more, I don't think there are more sexual abusers in the Haredi community than in other places. I think that where we have a, a really an issue that becomes more difficult or more complicated than in other places is stopping those abusers after they've hurt poor people instead of 80 people um, mm. because there has been historically this this resistance to reporting or resistance to dealing with abuse by any means outside of internally um, people I mean this would be logical to say that that people will get away with abusing more victims before they're stopped um, or if they're ever stopped. So I think that, you know, and anecdotally it would put it this way. I recently heard a, a professional, a criminologist who works in the Haredi community with sexual perpetrators, um, sexual abuse perpetrators say that, you know, he said, put it this way, I have never met a professional that works in this field in the Haredi community who believes there's less sexual abuse than anywhere else, mm -hmm. meaning less abuse being perpetrated. Um, and again, I don't think it's a matter, like I, I really do believe just what, from the limited research that there's been and just the research that we have about the general population, um, my my instinct, based on what I've seen, is that there are not more sexual abusers, but until we start stepping up how quickly we deal with them, they're going to get access to more victims before they get stopped. So that's, yeah. So, yeah, how did you... Okay, you grew up. Yes. <laughs> and how how did you? Come I really to I started working with um, with at risk teens. That was after my own personal experiences. I thought I wanna I wanna really support um, teenagers who are leaving the community, but leaving the community in a really kind of toxic, unhealthy way. Um, I'm not talking about people who leave the community because they have you know decided this is not for them. This is I'm talking about people who have turned to drugs or alcoholism or unsafe sexual practices or have just gotten into a really kind of delinquent life um, as they've left and um, and in that that's where I, I started working in that field and um, very quickly just continued to see that it seemed like every every person every other person that I was talking to had been sexually abused I worked as the assistant director in a residential therapeutic program for a few years 
and about 85% of the students there had all been were all victims of I'd say severe sexual abuse um, and I was like well this is an odd this seems to indicate maybe there's some sort of like maybe maybe this is related somehow um, and it just kept I just I felt like it was following me I now know that it wasn't really following me it was just it's just everywhere um, and after I finished uh, working in that position I started volunteering at um, at again at the time again it was a very different organization it was a small local organization based in Beechemesh um, that dealt with child abuse in a much broader way not just sexual abuse actually primarily at that point I think we were dealing with physical violence um, like in schools mm. um, and things evolved I ended up working with ended up collaborating with other organizations and getting involved in a number of different projects and then at some point um, started working as a case manager in Magin and then shifted over to a different organization in in working with a different organization in America and then I think about six years ago um, was when I took over Magin and we started making a number with the Magin of today is sort of an evolution um, of the again then sort of a combination of a number of different projects and initiatives and organizations and activists that sort of all pulled together um, to create the again of now um, mm. which includes basically at this point we have like three different departments the first is um, to the goal of raising awareness and education so we've created a lot of different educational resources for parents and for children um, that are specific to the religious community um, we have uh, we do educational events for parents like workshops as well as trainings for professionals um, and you have a hotline yes yes so the hotline relates more to the other two departments which is the although not only because we do a lot of um, like a tiatsu where people will reach out reach out for advice of you know I suspect something's going on with a neighbor what do I do I suspect my child maybe saw something in school, something happened to them in school. How do I open up the subject with them without scaring them? So we do get a lot of that. And then we have the mental health services department. So we have social workers who we refer to therapy. We work with clinics all over the country. We don't do therapy in-house, but we work with a lot of different uh, programs that will sort of help people find the therapy that's right for them. Um, Sometimes that's very simple. It's just a matter of directing them to the clinic that's nearby. Sometimes it's finding them, you know, therapy that's funded that, you know, for for a kid who, for a five-year-old kid who speaks Yiddish, there aren't, there's not a very long list of therapists that meet their criteria. <laughs> um, so yeah, that can be sometimes easier, <laughs> sometimes more difficult. And we also have a number of different support groups for victims um, and for uh, parents. We actually have one for ex-wives of abusers, which is a mm. population that really needs a lot of support. Um, and we have our advocacy and investigation department which basically deals with supporting victims through all of kind of law enforcement and criminal civil legal proceedings mm-hmm. that might mean helping somebody make a report to social services so they have a high if they need to and helping them navigate that process that might mean physically going with victims to the police um, sometimes it means helping them find a bait dean that will work for them if they are determined to go through a rabbinic process now obviously in situations where there's mandated reporting situations so we will report it or we will help them report it um and then we also do some private investigation work as well which is i think what for a number of years what most people knew us for because of cases like the malka lifer case it tends to be the most public pieces of the work that we do are from that department just because 
the media it's takes sexy. the most interest. Yeah, it's <laughs> the media takes the most interest in it. Nobody really. We use that word sometimes. It's true. Everybody wants to feel like James Bond. <laughs> Everybody yeah, wants yeah. to get in on that side of uh, yeah, yeah. that side of things. So, so there's a department for awareness. There's a department for sort of emotional and psychological support, and then there's a department that's more legal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I want to get into some of the bigger cases that you've dealt with and maybe also talk about uh, some of the, the support, the psychological and emotional support groups that you guys provide. But before that, I wanted to ask you maybe a personal question that just kind of popped into mind, which is, I, I, do you have a family? Like, are you a mother? Yeah. You're a mother. Yeah, uh, I am married with three kids. With three kids. Are you are you not terrified? I mean, living within the Haredi community like knowing what you just told us that you know okay perhaps there's the same amount of abusers but they get more victims so ultimately you know i don't care how many abusers there are i mean i care how many victims there are are you not worried that like you're raising your children in a community that there is a higher risk for for this because i was just thinking about you know the you said parents call and they're like i have a fear that my child might have you know something might have happened and I'm thinking, like, just to think that is, is I mean, terrifying. statistics don't really work the way that it, like, I know that statistically my children have a, first of all, the statistics that are known today in Israel are that all, basically all children in Israel, um, meaning minors until the age of 18, there's there's a one in five percent chance of being abused, meaning one in five children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And that's both boys and girls. Because the statistics vary after age 16, it's higher for girls than boys. Um, But up until that age, it's the same for both. And that so far, and again, the research is is limited in terms of how much it's broken down by communities, but this is overall. This does include both Haredi populations, the the Jewish, Muslim, Christian, this is across the board. Um, And that's, that's pretty terrifying. One in five is pretty darn high um so but what i always tell parents because they you know i work with a lot with families where there's they tend to have more than five children in any given family so you say that in a room of people where they've all got seven kids and everyone's like having a heart attack because that means statistically they're all going to have at least one child that was sexually abused um but statistics don't work like that there's there's risk factors and there's red flags um, you know, we say we know that children of parents of, of single parents have higher rates of being abused. That doesn't mean that if you're a single parent, your child is going to be abused. There's other things that you can do to mitigate that risk. You know, children that spend—I I don't remember what the exact there was. There was research that was on the parents that spend something like a minimum of ten minutes with each child a day. The, you know, the rates of sexual abuse lower. It, there's all different things that can be done. It's just not the way. Like I said, statistics don't work that way. So there's. As much as it's it's something that's very concerning to me, I also know that I've done a lot of things to mitigate risk, mm. as, you know, as much as I can. In my and then there's absolutely nothing. I, I know there's absolutely nothing that I do, and I tell this to parents all the time. There's nothing that you can do to be in any community to be 100% sure that your child will not be sexually abused, except perhaps locking them in a room alone for their entire lives, in which case they're going to have a whole host of other major issues yeah. that I do not recommend. <coughs> can um, raise his awareness, her right. awareness. Well, it's not just about raising his or her awareness, meaning for the child, because children can't, and that's actually, it's a risky thing, because sometimes when we talk about educating our children or making them aware about abuse, um, it can be understood as 
putting a like onus of responsibility onto the child to protect themselves. Children can't protect themselves. No child, no matter how educated or aware, um, will have the mental, emotional, psychological, practical ability, strength to stand up to a perpetrator in certain situations. Like we're all, even as adults, I mean, most most people, certainly most women, have probably had the situation or had been in the scenario of being on a bus or being in a public place and all of a sudden they realize someone's touching them and they freeze because we're not, you're not prepared for that in that situation. Maybe like as I'm, you know, you're talking about it and you're like, if this were to happen to me, I would do X. But in that moment, you're not expecting it. You're not in that mindset. That's exactly the point. That's what predators, they rely on the fact that you're not expecting. You're not standing there on a bus expecting to have to fight off some guy grabbing you from behind like it's just you're not in that mindset so children are never in that mindset it's just not doesn't matter how many times you talk to them if they're in that scenario and it's their teacher or it's their counselor they're not they they can't it's not something that the vast majority of children can even process in that moment but they shouldn't hide it exactly the um success rates of therapy with children who have been abused are obviously much 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 higher the sooner the abuse is disclosed and the sooner that the treatment can be given and obviously the sooner the abuse is stopped you can't compare abuse that happened one time as opposed to happen you know if it went on for months so that really is the goal the goal is to raise children that can pick up pick up on things i have a child who had a situation um, on a train um, a man sat down next to him. He was there. He was on the train with a camp, with his camp, and he ended up sitting a little bit separate from the other kids because the the counselors apologized profusely. Hadn't noticed that there wasn't like enough room right there, so he was like, two seats back. wasn't really the end of the world, but he wasn't immediately visible to the counselors. And a man sat down next to him, and he, I mean, when he came to me afterwards, he was so shocked. It was almost like I feel like I like <laughs> it was so crazy because. It was almost like all of a sudden he understood everything that I do in this different light. And he was like, Mommy, he looked like a rabbi. Like, he really looked like you're right. It really, they don't look like bad people. I said, I know. He was like, it's crazy. It was like all of a sudden, whoa. Um, The guy sat down next to him and he started talking. First, he was like allegedly learning with him. And then he started talking about some really inappropriate topics. Um you know, asking him how much he knows about women, and it was veering into, like, sexual, clear sexual connotations. And my son got up. He told him he had to go to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom past where his friends were, and he told his friends, come and get me and pretend you pretend you need me. Like, I need to get away from this guy. Um, went back, sat down, and the friends, a minute later, came and said, we need you to come sit next to us. And then at that point, right away, the counselors realized what was going on. And he said to me, you know, I, I should have, I should have, I should have tried to take a picture so that I, and I was just like, I mean, he's been living with me long enough to know. And I, and I just said to him, no, like your, your only job when you are a kid in that situation, your only job is to get yourself out of that situation. There's mm-hmm. nothing else. So you did everything that you were supposed to do. So now I can't, I'm not going to, I feel like when I, even when I share that story, there's almost like a, you could, you could flip that story and say, okay, and then for every child who didn't do that. For every child who doesn't pick up on that, it's somehow the parent's fault. They didn't prepare them enough. They didn't. It just doesn't work like that because my son could have also in that moment frozen, been so completely shocked by the fact that this guy looked like a rabbi and was that he just sat there. Or 
he actually said before he went got up and went to the bathroom he pretended to be asleep he thought if he pretends to fall asleep mm. and i just immediately was like oh god because <laughs> that could really backfire um and thankfully it it didn't the guy did not start touching him while he was pretend sleeping um but he kept trying to talk to him so that was when my son got up and walked away so like this could have it could have ended a whole host of different ways and thank god it ended fairly quickly and he how old is your son he was 12 he was 12 oh okay. yeah which time. is also like uh, uh i guess a, funny to say but a privilege to be that age in those situations meaning you know many kids are six seven oh sure younger, absolutely then, of course and then they, they don't have the yeah. wherewithal to, to to you know have those kind of mature and the fact is that i, I remember when my Thank when you. my son was in my uh, a different son was in was in first grade and he had his first school trip they went it was the beginning of the year they went to the hotel i was a wreck beforehand i was so nervous and i the speech and i get we get the speeches over and over again what do you do if you're separated from your class do you go to what do you do you find a mom you don't and then it finally he said to me mommy you don't have to worry i'm going to the kotel everybody there wears is wearing a talis so they're all tzaddikim and i was like no <laughs> i have what is you've listened to nothing he was six and yeah. that's how much he had absorbed what i the 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 over and over like it there is i mean clearly yes. he was not prepared for much of anything at that point <laughs> thankfully he didn't get separated from the class but there's that's why like you can give kids information and the problem is that we actually see sometimes the opposite there are a lot of therapists that point to children that are given the say no run away speech over and over again often actually feel like a compounded level of guilt if they're abused when they're abused because they knew what they were supposed to do and they didn't manage. Hmm. So like they, they, they knew. So now they really, they broke the rules. The rule was you say no and you run away and they didn't say no and run away. So mm -hmm. now they did something wrong. So there's this like added level of shame. Yeah. I was supposed to stop this. I was taught how to stop this and I didn't. When the fact is no, children can't stop abuse. They have like, if all the stars align, like in a situation with my son, they can manage to extricate themselves from the situation, which call kavod to him. But like I said, Otherwise, that could have ended yeah, eight not, different ways yeah. that would not have been as good. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, the work you've done on cases like Malka Lifers. Like, what what does that look like? Like, how does the case come to you? Uh, how does it present itself? And then, what do you end up doing with it? So, I'll start. Um, there was a case that I can share a little bit about because it was it, it's was somewhat public. Um, we were contacted by a young woman who had been sexually abused severely um, when she was five years old by a man who made Aliyah from the U.S. many years ago. Um, he had come here, he was a student in yeshiva, and he was living in like a apartment with um, a number of different students, um, young adults, and uh, he was her neighbor. And he started kind of volunteering to help out with the kids. Um, her mother was pregnant at the time on bed rest, so he offered to babysit. They this was the early '90s. People were not even in the even <laughs> it as informed as people in the Haredi community are now. They were less so then, by far. Um, and he sexually abused two of the sisters, um, the five-year-old and the two-year-old. Um, 
and she he he was arrested he actually wasn't even arrested for abusing those kids he was arrested arrested for abusing another uh another girl from a different family he served five years in jail however five the, years five years yeah and there was hard evidence that he was abused yeah. i mean he was convicted right so this was yeah now that's not even the craziest part <laughs> craziest part was, well, there's so many levels of crazy in this story. He was wanted in the U.S. And the police at some point realized that he was wanted in the U.S. because one of the parents, remember someone making a comment about something, and we found out only afterwards that the police realized when they searched that he was wanted by Interpol for raping two nine-year-olds in America. And the police at no point let the authorities in America know that he was wanted here, that he was here. Like they had found him. He was he was here. He was in an Israeli jail. Our police didn't. Our police did not let Interpol. Meaning know. they could have extradited him. Well, in order to extradite, they could have deported him. In order to extradite him, there would have had to have been a request. Mm. But they couldn't make the request if they yeah, didn't yeah. know I'm saying they he could have here. gotten him. <laughs> yes, yeah, he yeah. could have been like this. The five years was nothing compared to what he could have gotten. So, um, yeah. So he. We found out about this because the young woman, years later, the woman contacts us, she's in her early 20s. At the time that it happened, her parents had told her that he went away to jail for the rest of his life. They lied in order to protect her. She was terrified dealing with horrific PTSD as a five-year-old. She was in really difficult shape. Um, and they told her what they needed to tell her for her to feel safe. I completely understand that. And now she's a young adult. She's in therapy. Some, at some point in therapy, her parents tell her, by the way, he's, he's out. Um, I don't even remember how that came up. She was hysterical. She contacted us asking us to find him. So we, working with a number of different people in the community, some rabbis, some whatever, we, we found him. He was living in a community up north. We contacted the police. Um, unfortunately, this was a number of years ago when the case started, and I made the mistake of, of trusting a journalist with the information as well, just that this was ongoing. I felt like it was very important for the media to cover the story just to raise awareness of the massive holes in the system. I don't even know if you can cut it a, call it a hole when it's like that big. It's just like yeah. just a broken system. Um, but the deal had been that um, they they don't the, the media wasn't going to actually publicize it his name until after he was arrested because we knew he would just run again. Um, and unfortunately, they reneged on that deal. After that, we we now have another member of our staff. Our staff has grown significantly. I do have to say since. Uh, since the early years. Um, we have 15 or 16 staff members now. Um, and one of them is a Yoetz Tikshoret, and he's he's a... Communications he's, advisor. Yes, he's a communications advisor, and he's an advocate. Um, with He supports victims through the media process. So when we have a story that we want to share with the media, he's the one who like represents the victim, so to speak, vis-a-vis -vis the media. We don't mm -hmm. just hand the media story and have the victim go and interview and then God knows what happens after yeah. that because unfortunately a lot can happen. This guy um, bolted. Yep. So media shared the story. This guy ran again. So at that point after, so the victim here in, in Israel was still in the process of deciding if she wanted to go to the police to make a report because again, he had never been charged with the crimes against her. Why didn't she do it as he was sitting, <coughs> serving time? Well, at the time, she was very young at the time. Mm -hmm. They tried interviewing her. She was not, she was okay. unable to talk. Okay. Um, and even though there was some physical evidence, uh, just of her in the, during the exam, that they discovered that there wasn't enough, 
without mm-hmm. her testimony. Mm-hmm. So now it's years later, and she's deciding. So she, after a number of months, she decided. I mean, first of all, she had to process the fact that he was even out, that this was an option. She went to the police. The police go to arrest him. He had bolted two weeks earlier. Um, he then moves. He then moved again. After we, there, there was a series of. Cat and mouse. Yes. He, he bolted within Israel? Yes, within ah, Israel. okay. It's like, um, how, uh, it can't be that easy he, to disappear. I will, I will say one thing about the police. In, and we got... They suck? E- yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. And I don't say that lately because there are some detectives, we work with a lot of detectives who are unbelievable. Like, they sure. are really devoted to yeah. their jobs. And they go way above and beyond. And they work insane hours without getting paid overtime. And... And then there are some that are garbage. And this yeah. case, unfortunately, was taken by police who, the, the, the lieutenant of in, like, in charge of the investigations in that particular station was fired. I believe this case had something to do with it. Um, because it was like a real embarrassment. They screwed up so badly. They, they said they couldn't find him. And we kept saying, well, what do you mean you can't find him? Like, I mean, if somehow, if I don't pay 200 checkout for my cellcom bill, it doesn't matter what hole I hide out in. Like, I could find a cave in the mid- Like, yeah. they will find me somehow. I don't understand how you, like... Cellcom, not the seriously, police. Like, Cellcom will cell- find you. They will find me in that hole, yeah. and they will pull me out, and then I will pay, like, 2,000 shekel worth of fines for not paying them, like, somehow. We're, you should have opened a Cellcom Yes, uh, under his name. Under That's his what name. we got to start doing, just them. putting bills under their name and cell phone companies. Um, yeah, so they said they couldn't find him, except skipping ahead to the end now we at that point um i said okay we're gonna find him we're gonna find him like come hell or high water we gotta find this guy and we started searching one of my investigators at the time really i mean the number of hours that he spent driving up and down the coast we thought we found him at one point in some area and our investigator literally went like house to house knocking on the door asking if he could hang up mezuzot like for for them just like pretending to be from chabad and that like we've done a lot of things like that just like to you know try to figure out where couldn't find him everywhere anywhere and then through a series of complicated maneuvers that i can't really share um we found out that he was going to be at a certain uh, medical clinic on a certain day Mm. and we at that point we were working with cbs um on a documentary of sorts, um, a, a uh, just, I don't know, expose on a couple of cases, mm. specifically on this topic. And they actually flew in a whole team from the UK to follow us to this appointment. I was like, guys, you know, there's a chance he doesn't show up. Like this is really, he's, we've, we've had, we've had situations like this before and then he hasn't shown up. Like you, thankfully he did. And it was so crazy. Like the whole situation, he showed up we called the police. We said, um, we're, you know, sitting outside this clinic. This guy is here. He is, uh, this is his Tudatahut number. You have a Tzav Matzar. Like, there's a warrant for his arrest. Come and get him. They were, first of all, unbelievably confused. Like, this was just a locus, local police. We were, like, somewhere in the Merkaz. It wasn't in the... And, but they sent, I will say, the police showed up very quickly. They arrested him. Um, the whole thing was filmed. And then I called the victim, who was living in America at that point, to tell her that they they found him and he had been arrested. That was a very emotional conversation. 
What was so crazy is that after it came out, we found out that number one, we were contacted by, basically he had, he was in a rehab. He had suffered some medical issues and he, the reason that no, that we hadn't been able to find him was because he had been living in this rehab. Um, and we got a phone call from a nurse at the rehab who said that she, from the time that he got there, months before, she felt like something was very off about the guy. She said she's never done this before. She's been working as a nurse for like 30 years. She's never done this. She Googled his name. And she found the Interpol website saying he's wanted. So she called the police. And she said, like, I have this guy here. He's wanted by the police. Now, she didn't even know that he was wanted by the Israeli police. She just knew he was wanted by... So she called the police. The police didn't even know he was wanted by them, probably. Yes. The police just kept saying, okay, yeah, we'll send someone. They never did. And then we found out that... His address, his official address, had gotten multiple letters from the police, from the actual station where he was, the station we, she had reported to, where we were like You're working. You're wanted. The ones that were, yes, please come in for an interrogation. What a bunch of idiots. Now, that's an acceptable, maybe, maybe that's an acceptable way to like invite someone in for an interrogation if they like are suspected of, of I don't know, stealing it's a bike. Suspect. For stealing a bike. Not like you've been a fugitive for 19 years for child rape. We're going to send you a letter. Like, please come in. And if you don't... Also, he's a fugitive, meaning he might run again. How do we know this? Because he's done it before. Like, why would you send a letter? And then they kept claiming they didn't know where he was. No, it turns out they did know where he was. They just kept sending letters instead of going to arrest him. So, yeah, we found him. He was arrested. Um, And that was like... I mean, that case was incredibly frustrating, especially because it wasn't even like... They didn't really need us. It wasn't, I mean, they shouldn't ever need us, but it wasn't even like a matter of like community connection. Sometimes there's like things that we can get away with asking that the police can't. Um, you had to do their job. Essentially. Yes, this they was very much us doing the police's job. I don't know what they were doing. It was a really <laughs> crazy situation. Um, but then we had another case, which I think was a more like classic, like this is where I feel like we, this is where we come in and where we can really be helpful. There was Wait, a, can we can we follow up with that sure. case for a few questions and then yes. I want to I want to move on to the other one. But um that's just insanity. That's just insanity. So she what happened with him in the end? He was arrested. Oh, was he so sent he, to No, so he was actually charged here in Israel with the crimes against the Israeli victim. And then he uh, was convicted. Yeah. He was sentenced to 13 years. 13 years. 13 years. For raping an, a 6-year-old. Five-year-old, yeah. Thirteen so we gotta, years we talk about for that. raping a fi- yeah. That's that was my follow-up. Yeah, yeah. is that's, like what are the what are the minimums and maximums for these kinds of crimes in Israel, I or mean, are there? There are officially, I think it's seven years for each. I'm not the right person to ask you about that. I'm not. I'm not a, a lawyer or a prosecutor. I haven't worked in that in, so I'm not sure exactly what it is now. I think it's seven years per charge. Now, ideally, meaning if it you rape. A five-year-old. You no, I'm sorry. It's seven years for molestation. Right, he's okay. higher. But what they usually do is they combine the charges. They almost never slash never. I don't think I've ever heard of a case, which that's just me. I've never heard of a case where they they sentence the person concurrently, meaning where they serve one sentence after another. So it's, Do you have any idea what the minimum is for raping? The minimum for I'm not sure. But it at least it's not any higher than thirteen. 
Meaning, oh, well, certainly, right. So meaning certainly, you can yeah. rape a five-year-old and not get more than, and, and yes. get 13 euros in prison. That's you just could, insanity. And 13... Could get less in my Yeah, 13 experience. is, if with good behavior... It's a third gets taken you, off. Third is taken off Yeah, in Israel, almost always. Yeah, the sentencing guidelines is <clears throat> one of the things that needs like a major reform here. And what is, do you have any idea what's holding that back or why that is? Or do you have any theories, ideas? Well, I think the biggest one is actually Knesset prison. members like... <laughs> no, wait, wait, well, this wait, has wanna, stayed the same through, through many Knesset. So I will say I probably agree with whatever you were going to say, probably. But, but I, this has, it has been the same through multiple governments. So I can't even point to like it being a specific government or any series of governments. Um, I think it mostly has to do with money in specifically uh, prison over room, room in prisons. There is no room. There, there's no room in prisons in Israel. It can't be that simple. What, there's no room to put pedophiles? So we're like, ah, oh, well, we just got to let them off after 13 we years. We literally had a case last, last year, a year and a half ago. A guy had been, a guy had been, he was up for parole. And he had actually served a very short sentence. It was, unfortunately, it was a plea deal and... It was a complicated situation where he he served like uh, it was something ridiculous, like two and a half years, and um, he and after okay he was he was up for parole potentially he got he they had a risk assessment he was they had him undergo a risk assessment the risk assessment found him to be too dangerous to be released. One week later, he was released. A week and a half later, he was released because of. Um, say it in english it was like an administrative release because they ran no out room. of room yeah. but that's releasing i'm wondering like when you sentence are there are there are there sentencings the where away. they say we can't sentence him to more because there's just no room no 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 so i don't that's not that's not how it works the, it's not the judge's job to worry about the rooms in the prisons yeah that's they just problem. sentence i'm based talking on about why the sentencing guidelines aren't longer like why they don't that's that has <coughs> to do with the government like Prisons would collapse pretty practically with our statistics. That's just right? insanity. But um, yeah, it's also a question. With in Israel, it's not the only punish. It's not the only offense that gets you out easy, right? Yeah. Also murder, or so you know. And it's always also a question because the law does allow the judge to charge to to give more years. You no more, <laughs> but the judges usually are very 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 lenient uh, yeah. yeah lenient lenient and yeah that's the big problem we have with the judges it's just infuriating like to yeah. think that someone like that got 13 years do you know what it is in the states like do you have similar well rape i don't know if it varies per st- i don't know if it varies per state i know that definitely in some in some states it's 25 to life yeah um for not even for a minor like not a, right. it doesn't matter if you rape right. a minor or rape is is very similar i think in again i'm not sure how it varies between states but in most places it's and pretty it shouldn't. close to murder it shouldn't it's like it shouldn't matter if you rape like a 19 or a 25 year old or a fi- like even though raping a 5 year old <laughs> is like i don't know I don't know how you could say one is more despicable than the other. It's, it's hard just like when you get to all levels such of despicable, despicable but, yeah. humans that they should go away for life and we should never see I them again. don't want them in, in our streets. The it's, other thing is that, that I mean, uh, if we're talking about funding that's needed for prison systems and reform, I they, the perpetrators are not, are not 
necessarily and in fact are usually not given therapy in prison. Now, some people say, well, why do we need to give them therapy? We don't need them therapy. They should never see you know, sunlight again. Well, they're going to see sunlight again. That's number yeah, one. They're, they're going to see sunlight years, again. You know. So I'd rather they have some level of rehabilitation. Now, how successful is, is rehabilitation with adult offenders? Not very. But no one's going to argue that some therapy is better than no therapy. Like something. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll save one victim. I mean, something. Yeah. Um, that's what we would hope but yeah but i prefer that money to go build more cells um okay so let's let's talk about this other case that you were going to tell us and then we got to touch the medical life or yeah so yes this other case was we it was a case in the uh i'm trying to think if there's i think there's it was public it was a fairly public case although um our involvement wasn't really so public um there was a man from uh, the East Coast who was um, one of his female relatives came forward um, that he had raped her as well as it turns out a number of her sisters as well. There were a number of members of the extended family that he had abused severely for years. He was a uh, Rosh Hashiva of a Shiva in on the East Coast. Um, unfortunately the he was the, the police um, station where the case was being handled was there were a lot of the the walls had ears <laughs> and he was tipped off um, before the night before he uh, was they went to go arrest him he got <sighs> on a plane to JFK uh, from JFK to Tel Aviv and skipped the country so they showed up to arrest him he was gone um, now, I had heard about this case for years. It was like one of the, I mean, if you worked in my field, it was like one of the cases that we all knew. This guy was somewhere in Israel, and every so often we'd like hear rumors. Somebody would call us. I heard he's working with kids. I heard he's working in special ed. I heard he's working with, and he was, nobody had any clue where he was. Um, now, I was never, I had never been in touch with the victim, so I didn't, I don't tend to stick my nose into cases where I don't have any connection. Or, um, And a few years ago, um, one of the victims contacted us and asked. It was at some point during or like when the Malka Lifer case was sort of at its height, so they had heard about that and reached out to see if we could help. I'll be honest, like I wasn't sure that we could because, I mean, I'm not like what we did with the Lifer case, which we'll get to in a minute, was honestly I shocked myself. I didn't know that we'd pull that off. Um, and but I said, okay, we're going to try. Like obviously, if this is this is why we exist, <laughs> we got to try. And that was a really tricky one because he was under the radar in a big way. He knew he was being looked for on some level. He was very Haredi. He was completely under the radar. Like he was living here illegally. He had come as a tourist and he never made Aliyah. So he was just living here like with false papers and he didn't have. So there was really no, there was no Salcom to find him. There was no Kupat Cholim. There was nothing. Um, So first I started sending letters to the prosecutor's office, to the police to find out which unit had this case, who was looking for this guy. At this point he had been there, this was 10 years after he had come to Israel. For 10 years he's been hiding out in Israel, nobody knows where he is. Trying to find the police. To my great great luck, the detective, a detective was assigned the case, she wasn't really assigned it, she requested it by accident. She came across this case because her office had construction, it was a whole crazy situation. She comes across this case. She didn't even have the details. She just said, like in the cases when they send the extradition request, because um, I, I skipped that part, they, the U.S. did request extradition um, from Israel about about seven years 
prior. It took about two years from the time that he fled to the time they actually requested extradition. So she finds this case. She said, I saw the, just the summary, the description of what he was wanted for. And I was like, my God, like, who's... So I asked the other detectives, like, who's looking for this maniac? And they said, nobody. You want it? Go at it. He's, you know, somebody spent probably a couple weeks looking for him, realized he's under the radar. We have no traditional ways to find this guy. Like, he doesn't have Facebook, doesn't have a cell phone, or if he does, it's not under his own name. Not going to find him. They stopped looking. Um, Which also was really, what was upsetting to me is that, like, afterwards, when he was arrested, the police said, you know, after years of searching. No, it wasn't after years of searching. It was after a few months of a very unbelievably dedicated detective searching, um, and then she did something, which I give her amazing kudos for. She went high up in the police and got permission to work with us, um, and which was uh, obviously like highly sensitive and highly confidential. And we started, we shared with her what we knew. She shared a limited amount of what they knew. Um, and then we started looking. We found, basically the way that we had found him was we, we found his best friend. Um, he had a friend who moved to Israel at one point. We found him. We actually found where he had been living up until three months prior. He had just left. How did we find out? Because we sent someone, we sent a guy to all the local shuls, like the shtibels, the minion factories, the like, and with his picture. And they found a bunch of people, like he had been davening mincha there till about three months before that he had left. I'm sure you don't go around saying, do you know this pedophile? No, no. You say, like, (laughs) I'm looking for my brother or something like that. There's a story. It was a whole thing. He told everyone that he was his Rebbe in Yeshiva years before, and he's been wanting to meet him and thank him and some something. Um, Then we, so we found the best friend, and we called the best friend, and no one could get, the big issue was they couldn't get this best friend's cell phone number. Everyone knew his house number was listed. No one could get his cell phone number. They tried, couldn't get it. We called him, spoke to, I think one of our staff called his daughter, whole thing about how it's it was about a shidduch it's very urgent if we don't reach him right now the shidduch is going to fall through and that's like the magic words you're going to get anything get nuclear codes if a shidduch is going to fall through <laughs> so we got a cell phone number once we had a cell phone number we gave that to the police they were able to use that to figure to out Pegasus. he had been in contact yes <laughs> something i don't know what they did there they did what they did yeah, yeah, yeah. we all know he what they did right. now <laughs> i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna Say it. No one will ever work with me again. Um, they did what they did. They did it well. And within a week or so, he had he had been arrested. So um, wow. really, like, I have so much respect for, like, I feel like there are so, that's a detective who, like, all that mattered to her was getting the job yeah. done. She didn't care who she had to work with. Like, that wasn't even, and that's where I feel like. unfortunately, it's not one good apple, right? The saying is one rotten apple. Yes. Right? Like, so a couple good apples. Yeah. She was, uh, they enough. were, she was great. Her unit was great, but they, yeah, that was really, it was hard because I, I just saw like, this is like, we could help you guys with this kind of thing. Like, she's not gonna, they're not gonna call up a guy and like pretend to have a shit like, or, or maybe they will, but they won't. I don't think they'll be able to sell it <laughs> the yeah. way that we did. Yeah, and they yeah, extradited yeah. him? Yeah. Because, because the whole thing yeah, yeah. with uh, Malka Leifer, um, and we need to talk about it a little bit, is that extraditing, like, why do all those people run away here? Because it's not like Israel is a bit reluctant to extradite, no? And also right. the cops apparently are yeah. looking for you. Yeah. The cops are lazy. The cops send you mail. Right. <laughs> you are wanted for rape. Um, please the, come to the nearest yes. at your free time. Yes. Free when you well. have a chance. Okay. Jump by. Yeah. Right around the corner. <laughs> yep. Um, so, 
so Malka Leifer was different because she was an Israeli citizen. Mm. Israel is very reluctant to extradite um, its citizens. Less so, less reluctant with non-citizens. Okay. This guy actually, probably would have, if he hadn't been extradited, he would have been deported because he was here illegally for 11 years. So they did have a good basis to deport him also. Okay, so if he would have tried to get... There's a reason these guys don't get citizenship because if he would have tried to go through official channels, he would have yeah. been found. I'll be honest so with you. Tried to, to be stay, honest, yeah. at the time, now at this point, it's 13 years ago when he first came here, if he would have tried to make Aliyah, he probably would have been able no to. No one would have asked. I don't think him. anyone would have noticed. He was probably was just like too a scared. solid chance. Yeah, he was afraid. To, like, he knew he was wanted. Right. Above, uh, so he was keeping under yeah. ground. And can, okay. Yeah. So back to the Lifer affair. So I heard about Malka Lifer. I don't remember what year it was. Two thousand sixteen. And it was it was somewhat early on when the case was like I, I heard about it because everyone that worked in my field, which was like six people at that point in the world, um, knew about it. And were obviously extremely disturbed by it. At that point, she was still during the like sort of initial extradition proceedings. So you she need to tell been, the story for people ah, who yes, don't. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Malka Leifer was a um, a principal of a girls' high school, the Haredi Hasidish Girls High School in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, there, she abused a number of students, um, and when the school became aware when the board of the school became aware of the accusations, they put her on a plane back to Israel. That's the, the short summary. Um, it took a couple year, a year and a half, I think, for the, the authorities to request extradition. It's important for people to also remember extradition is like a really, it's kind of complicated and really expensive, like as a process, like to the government. So it doesn't happen. Like people say, oh, we'll just extradite them. Well, it's not so simple the to girls do. Are Australian? They com- compla- yes. filed a complaint in, in Australia. Australia. Yeah, which mm-hmm. took a while because these are girls coming from a really, really insular community, um, like as insular as it gets. And um, yeah, so they had made the report. It took a while for the authorities to like move things forward. The extradition was was uh, was requested, and at that point she was arrested. Um, now, what usually happens in cases of sexual abuse, and this includes extradition cases, which is insane. I'll get to in a second, is that the the standard is that they're released to house arrest. Unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance, um, with sex crimes, they're released to house arrest. Extenuating circumstances would be, I'm trying to think, I've only had a few cases ever that where the person has been kept in prison throughout the duration of the trial. And that is, in one situation, they had him on tape threatening to murder the victim. He got kept That'll in jail. That'll do it. Yep. And then another one where also they had reason to believe that he was like a serious physical danger to multiple victims. And they also knew there were multiple other victims that hadn't come forward yet. They knew he would, if he was out, he would like discourage them from coming forward to put that very lightly. Um, So he was also kept in jail. And I can't even remember any others at the moment. So um, you would think that extradition or when someone's a fugitive, meaning they're being held on charges relating to them fleeing another country, that that would be considered an extenuating circumstance. Like, why would we want to keep someone in jail so they don't run? What would give us an indication that they're going to run? Well, they already did it once. Like, why wouldn't you go to Morocco? Um, so, but they, they didn't keep her in. She was released to house arrest. And then at that point, that was when the fun started, where there would be a hearing, and she didn't show up. Two days before the hearing, she'd check herself into a hospital. 
she would be in the hospital. Her lawyer would show up at the hearing and say, oh, she's so unwell, she can't come to court. She's in the hospital. The court would adjourn for another two months. A day later, she'd be out. And this just kept repeating itself. And we're all thinking, well, this is idiotic. Like, clearly, she's like, what are the odds that two days before she gets unbelievably ill? Like, and then all of a sudden, she's fine again, right after, the, like, the day after the hearing. Um, and then at some point, so this repeated itself over and over and over again. And I remember at one point, the first time I went to, like, a protest, which, again, there were, like, five of us there um, at the court when we first started hearing about this case. And... I remember I got there to the court and I said to the guards, like at the front, they said, what hearing are you here for? And I told them, and I remember she said, you know, she's not meant, like she's not meant to, you know, I'm Like she's not supposed to be coming. And I was like, oh, she's supposed to be coming. <laughs> she's not going to come, which is the problem, but she's supposed to be. Like they were already, as far as everyone was concerned, this was already a done deal. She wasn't coming. She was, yeah, it was, this was just a joke. Like we were just all pretending that we were, wow. this was a court case and really, yeah, it was a charade completely. Um, and then I didn't really get involved for another, for a while after that. At that point, the judge ruled that she should undergo a psychiatric evaluation. She was evaluated by the Jerusalem district psychiatrist who ruled that she was unfit to be extradited. Now, it's important to be clear about this because sometimes people think that she was ruled that she was mentally ill. That's not accurate. People can be mentally ill and stay on trial. There are some that would argue that the vast majority of people on trial for violent crimes, sex crimes, are mentally ill in some way. They have some sort of, I don't know, personality disorder or something. They're, you know, like most people are not 100%, but that doesn't, there's a difference between being unwell and being unfit to stand trial. Like the level of awareness that a person has to have and their level of understanding of the process that they're going through. She doesn't talk to chairs. Right, exactly. (laughs) So like the fact that like she has anger problems does not mean like, okay, so we won't hold it, put anyone on trial if they've got, you know, like, issues with I don't know anything um so that was actually what what really ended up (laughs) I think they they lied so much that that actually was their undoing like had they just said she was like a little bit unfit they might have gotten away with it because they could have continued to argue that she could be a little bit unfit and still live a somewhat normal life but instead they they really argued like they were on record her team saying that she was so like she would be brought into the psychiatrist the psychiatrist's office like they would have to carry her in by both arms like a sack of potatoes like she was practically nonverbal, and then all of a sudden well i'm skipping ahead i'll get to that in a minute um so the psychiatrist said that she was unfit the judge ruled that the case was now going to be like paused frozen and every six months she would undergo another assessment from the psychiatrist for up to 10 years Huh. And then, like, and then at the, at the ten years, it would just Who's be considered. Who's this judge? Oh, she's a, they should be on trial. <laughs> the judge was working with the information that she was given. I yeah. mean, there was it was traced at that nah. was ultimately what Come ended on. up getting it's, Litzman. That's like uh, like you meet someone like uh, working with the information. If like if any of these stories would happen outside of a courtroom, you'd be like, this person's like right, like get fire. out of town. Like, fire, like what? Right. You really you're gonna let people like like uh, well, that's the thing fool about you court. like that? That is the thing about court that it's really important for people to understand. There's Israeli not, court to some degree. Yes, it's worse here, but to some degree, all courts they're only allowed to rule on what's in front of them. It doesn't matter, and that's it's part of the most maddening piece of being, and I always tell victims this, like you have to come in with this sort of like understanding that what you're watching is like a play. Everyone's playing a part. The defense attorney lying, 
and he knows he's lying and they know he's lying and we know he's lying everyone knows he's lying and yet this is his job and the judges have to ask this and say this even though like it's all a bunch of like we all know that this is I, I was but in court this morning with a case that like everybody knows everyone sitting in that room knows that there are tens of other victims this guy is a predator for decades but only one victim that's not true a couple victims came forward only one was still in the statute they are only allowed to rule on the one victim that's in front of them so the 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 his defense attorney gave this closing argument on and on about how this he's always had a clean record and he's always even though we all know that this is flat out bs the judges know it too he's allowed to say it because but that makes sense to me that makes sense to me meaning because you know there's evidence and and you have to like if something is in front of the court then but the idea that like someone they can just bring a doctor's note in that's got to be easily i don't know countered by a judge with two brain cells well i like, mean the judge you is can't not just allowed. keep bringing me in right. random doctor notes like bring well, in the doctor i don't know doctor's like, can... note it was actually the district psychiatrist like that's what was so and that's what it made said it. he needs 10 years no it said that she's it said right now she's unfit so then so the district psychiatrist six... is 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 like is to is is accountable for he such is. a ridiculous that's what happened so then wh- who is this guy well the district psychiatrist was getting orders from litzman that's why litzman ended up ah, that was litzman's <laughs> okay. involvement yeah he was it wasn't proven though okay yeah it right? was i mean he pled guilty he pled guilty to be and to have gotten frat emunim or something. I don't uh, remember how they. It was a plea deal. Uh, okay. It was some. He's not allowed to serve in the uh, whatever. Litzman admitted Litzman, guilty. Yeah. Okay. 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 So Litzman was the minister of health. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was this guy's yeah. boss. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so let's go back to. <laughs> yeah. So she's she's got six months assessment. So she gets uh, six months assessment. assessment. Yeah. Every one six assessment, for 10 years. right? One up to ten years. Up so, to 10 years. Uh, so one assessment, uh, she's still unfit. Two assessments, she's still unfit. I think it went through three assessments, still unfit. Somewhere around then, it was in the end of it was in 2018, 2018, end of 20, beginning of I don't remember. Um, I met with the three survivors for the first time. They came to Israel. Um, they asked if they could meet with me, and I was more than happy to meet with them. I mean, they're were, they were unbelievable. Um, I felt like there was very little for me to offer. At that point, this case was like up in the highest levels of government. Like this was, I remember that same week that they came, Bibi had a meeting with the prime minister of Australia and they discussed the Lifer case. And I was like, I don't know what I can do in this thing. If the, like, yeah. it's, it's, we kind of brought the, like, this has gone to the top. I don't know what else I, um, and when I met with them, I just felt like I asked them, "Okay, what are you? What are you? Do, what have you been doing while you're here? Tell me about your trip." They were in the Knesset. They were literally like there were some really awesome political people who like brought them, like snuck them into like all the MKs. They were like knocking on doors, literally like meeting. Like they really there was Lobbying. nothing that they had, yes for their mm-hmm. cause, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous that they should have to do that. Um, but they just like they felt like someone was putting their foot on the. Someone had their foot on the scale, which mm. turns out someone did. Um, they they like just they felt like they needed all the pushing that they could get or all the awareness that they could get. And they were really like I said, they went to every level. And I had so much like respect for these women because I, I have met some really unbelievable people in in my job. I mean, I, I actually really liked what you said earlier. I don't remember how you phrased it, but 
part of the awareness raising that that I love that we do that was important to me to do is that I, I feel like a lot of the sexual abuse stories about the Haredi community that get told are from a very kind of voyeuristic perspective, understandably so. But there's like almost like a, we're looking in on like people like there's new animals. Like, like how does they how do they do that? Um, and really, there's like unbelievable courage and creativity. Like survivors that are told they can't do this, so they like find a way around the system. Just like real courage and perseverance and like we want to tell those stories from from those perspectives in a way obviously that honors the privacy and whatever of, of course of, of the survivors anyway so I met the three of them and they were like they are beyond like I, I couldn't even you would think that these women are like trained lawyers and activists and lobbyists like the way like they really they they really like they were, gonna, they were going to yes yeah. <laughs> They were going to really like fight this thing till the end. They all they were asking for was the chance to face her in court. That's all they wanted. And I was, they were just so inspiring. And I remember I said to them like very casually, like, okay, what can I do? Because I just feel like there's nothing that I can do here. Like what? I didn't even say that. No, that's not true. I'm sorry. I didn't say what can I do. I said what would make a difference in this case? Like, is there something that you think would actually do something? And one of them told me that at this point, their lawyer really feels like unless someone brings evidence that she's faking this mental, this unfitness, this level of mental illness, that there's never going to be, like, she might really get away with this. And I said, okay, well, let's look at that. What is What, what, what would that entail? Now, the year before, there had been this whole big, like, <coughs> blitz on Facebook where there had been a picture posted uh, by a woman who, a girl, it turns out it was a seminary girl, like an 18-year-old Hasidish girl who had been in Mehron for Lag Omer and saw her, saw Lifer in Mehron, just living her best life, and took a picture of her. It was a very blurry picture. This picture was posted on Facebook. There was, you know, fury and whatever, and everyone was obviously, everyone following the story was obviously furious. This woman's, you know, being assessed as being so unfit she can't get on a plane. She's really just strolling around in Mehron. Um, so I asked what happened with that, and they said, well, it, that's not official evidence. The fact that it went on Facebook and a lot of people got angry, that's all good and fine, but the girl that took the picture was not willing to go to the police. Mm. She's an 18-year-old Hasidic girl. She's not taking this picture to the police and testifying that this is an authentic picture and she saw Makalifer. That's not happening. So they need, like, serious evidence. And I was like, well, could we get the serious evidence? Like, well, what if we got that? And they were like, if you could, that would be amazing. And I was like, we're going to... I'm gonna work on that. <laughs> I'll get back to you. And I remember, like, I was, I remember where I was standing. It was right near, like, Machni Yehuda in, in Jerusalem. And I called my, um, the, the, the CEO of JCW, which was the organization in America that we were working with at the time. And I described this, like, situation. And I was like, this is what could make a difference in this case. Can I, I wanna hire a PI. And he was like, go for it, figure this out, like figure, figure out what makes make sense. And I immediately called one PI that we had worked with a little bit in the past. I knew that he had worked a lot in the Hasidic community. I wanted to make sure like we have one shot at this. It's got to be someone who's going to really blend in. I also didn't want to do it ourselves, <coughs> even though we can, I can follow this lady just as well as, but I wanted, I know, I knew her lawyers personally, and I knew that I wanted somebody like licensed. Like I didn't want any room for any like, you weren't allowed to be doing, like, a, this was going to be completely above board, as above board as a PI can be. This was in early November, I think. We decided to do it over Hanukkah in December because I wanted a time where I felt like there would be the most chance that she'd be out and about. So I figured at the very least, like, lighting the menorah, she'd be, like, coming out of her house to the, you know, front. We'd see her. Um, 
And for that full week, they followed her. And I, and I was terrified because first of all, we were, it was not a cheap endeavor. And I really knew like we had one shot at this, A, because we're a nonprofit organization. We just didn't have the funds to like continue following her indefinitely. And B, like, I didn't know how this could blow up in our face. I didn't know what would happen afterwards. Um, and we just, yeah, we, they started following her. And I remember the first morning, I didn't even tell anyone on our staff. Like I really, only my, my partner in, in America knew, like no one knew that we were doing this. And the first day, I still have it, the picture that they sent me, the PI sent me of like her and her porch. And he just was like, okay, we're, we're started. And there was a picture of her on her phone, on her porch. And I just, until I saw that picture, I really didn't think it was going to work. I just didn't. And yeah, they followed her the whole week. And it was, it wasn't until the weekend, the first few days, she was in and out a little bit, not yeah, like a huge amount. picture of her on amount. her phone is not, is not Yes enough. and no, because she is, spent hours it... on her phone on the porch. She liked to pace on her porch on the phone yeah. for hours on end, which like, again, doesn't really paint the same picture as the woman who has to be carried in by two arms. But they could the say, you know, she's, she's been talking to her phone. And there's nobody on the other end. Or she's, she's talking insane. to a psychiatrist. I don't, yeah, oh, yeah I, right, whatever. for sure. It wouldn't be enough on its own. Yeah. And then Thursday came around and she started her Shabbos shopping. She got on a bus to B'nai Brock. They followed her to B'nai Brock on the bus. She went to the post office. She went to the dry cleaner. She went to, I mean, the woman to just the did movies. Like all of her, all the shopping. She met up with her daughter. They said, she was completely like, she was, she was fine. She was just living like a perfect, at one point her lawyer tried with like, a, are you claiming that mentally ill people can't take buses? No, no, sir. But you didn't argue she's mentally ill. You argued she's unfit. That's not the same thing. You argued she's so unfit she can't get on a plane. Yet clearly she's fit enough to get on a bus by herself. Like, there's, yeah. she's she is fit so then of course began the battle of the psychiatrist because the 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 judge is not even allowed to take a look at this and say okay this means she's not fit even though again common sense would dictate well clearly this is you have to have the psychiatrist say the psychiatrist needs to look at this and say okay yeah this is and this is still a dirty psychiatrist right so the psychiatrist so that's where it's things Which started didn't know getting at the time right things started getting hinky we started getting some phone calls I got some cryptic phone calls from people who worked in the within the Ministry of Health in various capacities. There were rumors. The psychiatrist, the psychiatrist division, it was it was becoming sort of like a known secret that because right away within the field, the psychiat like I mean I almost like until I found we found out that he was whatever I kind of felt bad for the psychiatrist like. Do you imagine being the guy who like gave his professional assessment, kept keeps the woman in Israel, and then all of a sudden it turns out she's faking it? Like he fell for this fraud. Like I was, I was like, oh god, this is like talk about being like making you know your worst day at work, like being portrayed on the yeah. international stage, like oh Australia is yeah. following it. Um, so yeah, it turns out like people within the psyche, like that division, the, the psychiatrist something. office knew that something was off. Like it had and been something was off. In the end, what what ended up being uncovered was that Leitzman was telling him to do. He was the, leaning on the psychiatrist. But no one really. I mean, the best they could do is hafarat name, So that means that he was like pressuring. Well, no, him. I think they did more than that. I think he pled guilty to like the lesser of the charges, which is how plea deals work. Just to yeah, but, but I'm saying, yeah. but, yeah, but they eventually. charged him with, him with what? Paying him off? No, it wasn't. It wasn't paying. He didn't give any money, as far as I know. It was so more what? of a well. He was his boss. So he threatened yeah, to fire him. Yeah, it's It's an implied threat. I see. 
of you know we need this to go one way and work for me I but mean, where do you go with this Aitam? like what's I'm your just saying that the district like nothing happened to the district attorney the district attorney the, the district, district psychiatrist sorry i'm actually not sure what where if they i i have my suspicions that they must have needed his involvement in order to get I right mean, they maybe usually try to go to for the The, the for the minister the in order to get fish. the minister you had to cut a deal with the psychiatrist that's usually how these mm. things work i don't know if yeah. that's what happened here i didn't we'll google follow it that they could have they, they could have charged him with something but perhaps if it, yeah yeah because that's pretty usually that's thing that like that that's pretty spineless to like uh, it's kind of I, i can tell you that there were people within that office that contacted us my god i really there i i showed up to one meeting once with like three hidden cameras and like a knife i like really was afraid someone was gonna like, kidnap me i had someone people waiting in cars and all i But was contacted the- by someone from that office because at one point when the case was after we had the private investigation part was done and when it was being reassessed by other psychiatrists because and the truth is i, I took this as a compliment to just like they were this this the person that was contacting us was He needed to make sure that that it was known that they like they shouldn't let basically Litzman was still leaning on more people. Mm. And they couldn't they didn't feel comfortable disclosing this to anyone because they would be fired or were afraid they'd be fired. And he basically said like you're the only people that I trust that you'll pass this information along where like you won't come back to me. Yeah. Um which again I just felt like was was a compliment in that like we're we are trusted that we have only one agenda here yes and like that's but what's the hidden forces behind this like how was how the the forces seem so powerful why would litzman carry (laughs) mean litzman i don't know it seems even it go how deep does this thing go (laughs) like why was she so powerful she had the money to hire communication advisors the best in the country Mm -hmm. uh, lawyers fleeing all this I, what's behind the, the curtain here i don't think it's not about her she's actually not so powerful even her husband's family their their her father-in-law is on trial right now for for sexual abuse also this because her husband's family's um bad news um but she uh, it wasn't about her it was about what <coughs> stood to come out i think if she once she gets convicted first of all in australia They were threatening and possibly still are to I don't I mean threatening that's not the right word but there was the threat that quote unquote that they were going to open an investigation into the board for actually criminal like that they had they claimed that the reason that they sent her away is because according to their contract with her she they had they had paid for her flight that was part of the deal when she came to Australia and that once the position had ended they were duty bound to send her back on a plane. Of course, in the dead of night, absolutely. This was just about, you know, making good on their contract. So that's their claim, that they were, they were just honoring their contract with her. They had to send her back to Israel um, once they fired her, which they did because she had sexually abused someone. So um, that was their, the way that they spun it. Um, but I think that there was a concern that once she came back and once that trial happened, that there would be a criminal investigation into the board. So there was a lot of motivation on that end to... fund her defense here so that she would never get back there that was number one number two she 
she came to Israel as a well into adulthood. People don't generally start sexually abusing that late in life. Like that's not the typical. I think this was reported on a little bit in the media, although they never ended up getting to details because none of the victims, alleged victims, would come forward. There were allegations regarding the time before she had gone to Australia. And I think, I believe that there was a lot of concern about that coming out and the liability that there would be if that part ever came out. The school that she taught in, there are some very powerful people there, and that's where I think the Litzman connection was. And Ah, uh, okay. okay. So Litzman was connected to some community here in Israel that was impacted by her yes. crimes. Yeah. Okay. So how did she end up getting uh, extradited? So after we, I, we, I had all this evidence, and I mean, I didn't actually have it. I asked them not to send it to me, because like I said, I didn't want the lawyers to be able to make any argument that I edited it, falsified it, did anything with it. So I told them, you keep it, the, the PIs. I went to the police. First, I called the prosecutor's office, because I didn't know what to do with this. I'd never done anything like this before. And the prosecutor was like, do not talk to me. <laughs> la, 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 like he's not allowed to hear this from me. He's like, I'm going to tell the police to call you. I get a phone call from the police. The police asked me to come in. I come in. Honestly, it, I still, like, whatever. I, it, <laughs> they, I don't know what the hell they thought of me. That for, I know. They, they were like, like, I walk in. I'm like this religious woman, and I'm like, I have this information. And I don't know what they expected. And then I, like, launch into this story. And I just remember at one point, the guy who's sitting there interviewing me is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. And he goes out, and he comes back with, like, his staff. Like, there's, like, four other people that come in through him. And they're like... What? Police Academy cadets. Right, like, what did, what did you do? And I was like, I no, he's like, these PIs. Listen, guys, this is how you do your job. <laughs> I, so they got, they actually got very excited because I think it was like, they don't get to usually do fun stuff like this. So, and the truth Listen of the matter is... Listen to people is, tell them how no, to do no, their job? No, no, the follow-up, the follow-up uh, of what okay. happened next. They took this, they took the, the, the what we brought them, which yeah. I didn't even give it to I just said, okay, here, call this guy. I gave him the PI's number. They called him, the PI came in and gave it all to them directly. Um, and at that point, the police started their own private investigation following up. They Basically, what they wanted to do was get evidence of her wellness up until the days around the court case meaning they didn't they didn't want her to be able to say oh well she was fine three weeks ago but then she deteriorated later on which was smart actually like i didn't really thought that deep into it but it was it was i really think that was that was a good a good move and they also with the evidence that we brought to them were able to tap her phones so they had a whole bunch of recordings of her conversations as well like the specifics of her conversations um, and then they arrested her. I was actually in America when they arrested her. I had gone for a visit, and it was like the middle of the night, my time. I wake up, and I had missed like 45 calls, and I was like, what the heck is going on? And there was this whole, and no one understood what had happened. Like how, And then I remember the media was going crazy because in court, they, they had talked about, like in the, the, the when the case, you know, she was back in, in court, and they were talking about there was some organization that had done this investigation. No one knew which organization. Nobody, like, there was just so much drama around it. And I was just, like, minding my own business, just waiting for them to do. And then I found out, because I was really naive. I really, at the time, thought that we're going to bring this to them. There'll be, like, a couple hearings, and that's it. She's going to be on a plane. Then, like I said, became the battle of the psychiatrist. The, the psychiatrist, then they had to bring another psychiatrist. Multiple psychiatrists had to review the footage. They had to assess the footage, and they had to assess her, and then they had to assess, and then the defense attorney was allowed to bring psychiatrists. All in all, I think she was assessed by like six different psychiatrists. What was um, the period of time? Two and a half years. 
until she was finally extradited. It took how, how many psychiatrists time. does it take to, <laughs> to tell a pedophile that's faking it? She really six a lot, a lot. It turns out six. <laughs> they were really uh, there. That was just it was crazy. It was the whole thing was so. And then every hearing, and we would sit there for hours and hours listening to them debate this of like, is she? Isn't she? Is she? Isn't she? It was. I just couldn't like believe that that it was so. That, I mean, I, I also think that at a certain point, the judge wanted to make sure it wouldn't get turned over on appeal. So she was giving them a lot of liberty, like a lot of, they wanted three different psychiatrists from their side to assess her. They, she let them have all three. Like it was, it just took so long. And of course, in Israel, there's there's not, there's not enough judges. So that's clear. So it takes months in between hearings. Like you don't usually have hearings one after another. It's usually like, I mean, I think that's also the difference because in, in America, for example, because they have jury trials, they're forced to have the the cases are like all at once. Like you have a trial that goes on for two weeks or like if it's a really crazy case, then it'll be a month. But it's all one, it's one day after another consecutively. Um, you don't have like a hearing and then another hearing. And like the case that I was at this morning, the next hearing's April 7th. Like it's, that's how this works. And then once you get to the summer and then they have the, then forget about it, it could be five months. Um, so it took it took a really long time. And eventually Ultimately, she was her. she was extradited. Is she an Israeli citizen though? She's an Israeli citizen. So yeah. they extradited. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can rare though. Yeah, Pretty yeah, rare. definitely more so. Yeah. And what happened to her in Australia? She, she was, was convicted. And what's the those punishment? Aussies. Let's, let's those uh, Aussies. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to know. They have jury, yeah. right? They have jury. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we're the only. By the way, guys, we're the only ex-British uh, colony that doesn't have jury. Really. Yeah, wow, that's and that's, interesting. that's because and that's because the Brits were said like if we have jury, it will be formed by Jews and Arabs, and if it, it's a trial against a British soldier or something, we're screwed. So, right? Because wow. the locals, I didn't know that. yeah. Huh. So they, they still wear the stupid robes though. <laughs> yeah, but not the yeah. not the wigs. wigs. Yeah. Um, okay. So how how long did she get? How much time did she get? Oh, <coughs> I should know this. In Australia. One second. <laughs> she got. Hey Google. Yeah. How long was Malka Lifer sentenced to prison I have to for in Australia? There was also they they also included time served. Fifteen years. Who are you talking to? Yes. Eighteen. Fifteen. I heard. Fifteen. Okay. Fifteen years. It was around that, but then I don't remember if that was before the time that they took off or after. You really would think I would remember that, but there's so, unfortunately, I have so many of these. two quick questions before we wrap things up. First of all, the victims, did yeah. they pay a price in their communities, in their lives, in the Malkalife case? Well, there's no question. You mean in terms of for reporting? Yeah, for... Meaning aside from the, the, the pain and suffering they already went through, of course. I think that for them, there was, I mean, there, there's the price on the communal level of like the level of ostracization for having reported someone from within such an insular Haredi community. And certainly, I, I don't want to speak to that too much because I feel like that's something that's very much their life. Um, but there's no question that they did pay a price there. Aside from that, they paid obvious prices for the, for, for just the, the practicalities of fighting this kind of fight for as long as they did, um, and and there were there were certainly I mean like literally practically they 
think about the number of times they had to fly to Israel. The number of times they had to all those things do not cost nothing. There was there was like there there are actual costs associated with fighting this kind of extended drawn out battle. And I think about that all the time. That even the victims here in Israel, the, the simplest of cases, you know, so to speak, um, victims are the, the taking off of work to come to court and for the meetings because there always has to be meetings with the prosecutor before the case and after the case. Whatever. There's a lot of of just of practical costs associated with this. Um, and that's obviously the case for anyone from any community. Um, it's not it is not a simple thing. It's not a simple decision, which is why I can absolutely say that I, I have no judgment for any victim that decides they don't want to go that route, that doesn't want to report to the police. Obviously, I have tremendous appreciation for victims who do because there's also the public safety component. But I absolutely understand when someone chooses not to. It's it is not easy. And you said you work also in America and also here. Right? We used to. Used we to. used to work in America. But you have this perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so would you say that like a jury, a jury would be more helpful, helpful for your cause, right, than, than the Israeli judicial system? Um, If we had a jury, jury, would it? That is a good question. I mean, on the most basic level, it would be easier because, like I said, they'd be forced to actually adjudicate cases all at once. <coughs> And that's, um, that's a big, big pro because cases take like a year and a half minimum mm-hmm. to get through here with the number of And like... And justice-wise? I think that there would be um, I think that yeah it definitely could help um, because mm-hmm. I think that juries I mean that this is I know again this isn't a matter of what I think this is pretty clearly borne out from that juries tend to be more emotional than the judges will be um, so they will they tend to ask for longer sentences and be more convict punitive yeah wow you are an inspiration first of all thank you Really, um, thank you so much for sharing all these stories and all this information and it's insightful but also inspiring and and uh, it gives some hope you know to know yeah. that there are people out there looking out for uh for for our kids and for you know things the, are things are changing that's important for me to for me to say there's i I can just on the most basic level when I first started doing this. I think it was two years from the time that I started in this job, two or three years, till the first time that I brought a victim to the police. It wasn't even, like, I don't think at the beginning, I, I don't think I thought about it. Like, it was just, just getting victims to agree to go to therapy was um, hard enough. And then now, at this point, we have days that we don't have enough members of staff and volunteers to get, like, to bring all the victims to the police that are reporting, one in Haifa and one in Beitar and one in Jerusalem and one in whatever, like, Modini lead like they're they're like we'll have people all over the place just with victims in court and do you take like I'm assuming you don't turn anybody away <laughs> but like do you take do you only take on cases from the Haredi community or oh so no it's a really good question we I would never turn anyone away what's unique about us is that we all of our staff are either in or from the Haredi community like we all have like a real deep understanding from various different sects and factions but we're all like everyone has a really so strong understanding yeah so what so we we can offer like a lot of unique understanding there are things that we'll do like when we have victims that come to us from certain Hasidic communities we will help them find like get to a rabbi 
to give them the okay to go to the police. Not because I need the okay. I know it's okay. My rabbi says it's always okay. Like there's, you know, and they're not even because they need the okay, but because I know that the day after they're going to start getting phone calls from their children's schools and from their jobs saying, you know, like, how could you have done this? And like, they're going to have to live with the pushback, not me. I get to go home at the end of the day. Um, So, and I know that what would help them is having a letter from a rabbi saying that they were okay to do this. So, but then we have to find a rabbi who actually understands this issue and who we actually know is going to be supportive. And we, so that's something that no other Merkaz no other crisis center is, is going to do that I'm familiar with. Not because they don't support, they would support any victim who reaches out to them, but they're not going to have that understanding. And they're also not going to have all those rabbis on speed dial. Um, and they don't have those relationships with the rabbis where they can just call up and say, yes, in this case, it's very necessary. It's, I don't know, it's about the best thing for the victim. Yes, she's ready for it. Yes, she's... So, yeah, so we wouldn't turn anyone away, but I might, if I feel like there's another center that would be better suited for that victim, I might refer them and make the introduction. I mean, just like, I mean, certainly, I, I've been asked before, like, what would you do if, if, a, if a, a victim from the Arab community reached out? So there, I think, especially, like, there's such a there's such a potential cultural difference that I would really want them to get help from a crisis center that has like people that speak their language that do understand you, what they're do doing. Do you know with. though, like centers that fit? Yeah, some absolutely. of the big and and, mm-hmm. and you trust them? Yeah, okay. for the most part, not all of them do all the things that we do. I know that the like that sort of private investigation type stuff that yeah. we do is very unique to us. I yeah. don't know of anyone else that does that. Yeah, you wouldn't um, really be able to blend into the Arab community very well. Right. <laughs> Go undercover there. We actually had one volunteer who showed, who showed up and he had, from his, he had a lot of experience with that. And I was like, unfortunately, that's the one thing that I don't think I have any, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with you here. That's not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. so useful to me. <laughs> Can people donate? Yes. How? Yes, of course. We always appreciate that. Um, through our website is really probably the easiest way. It's magain-israel.org. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, Shana, thank you so much for coming. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. For really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Guys, tune in next time. Bye, guys. Bye.